They always ask every time you want a prayer. Why would you not want a prayer? Um, the prayers are what just calms my soul, gets my mind going. Grateful for the asking what you did and just the beauty of that. Um, yesterday, just a quick reiteration. If you weren't here, that's fine. Don't stress over that. We just walked through the doctrine of the fall, that there's a difference between a fallen man and a natural man. Which, in a nutshell, why is that so important is how often people who are struggling with emotional wellness often think they're doing something wrong, something's wrong with them, they're pathetic, blah, 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 all those other things. And what is going on is they are fallen beings. All of us are fallen beings. All of us need help. All of us have difficult emotional struggles. And in that process, if we choose to respond to those things in a way that is not healthy or good and goes to the side of sin, then of course it becomes natural man or carnal, sensual, and devilish in that way. So making sure we break the fall into two parts gives us tremendous hope. I talked to uh, yesterday a little bit about my wife's experience with struggling with depression for all those years. We'll even use an analogy that, that, that helped us a lot with that. But when we start to understand the difference between she often felt like she probably was doing something so wrong. She was not saying she was not saying her prayers enough. She was not reading her scriptures enough. Blah 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 blah. On to this, I said, sweetheart, let's look at this. And I started opening up and going, we're fallen. This is one of your propensities or whatever it may be or a difficulty you have right now. But it does not define you. It's not who you are. And you're not sinning. You are not moving to that side. And so it's, you're not being carnal or sensual or devilish in this. You're working through mortality. And, and so that has been one of the doctrines that I felt has been such a blessing to so many is to realize what they're facing, what they're going through, is because we're here. Because it's part of the battle. So there's two that I want to do today. <clears throat> is I want to work through the doctrine of agency to help you understand how that works within uh, emotional and mental struggles. Okay? And then I want to walk you through false beliefs. And how to correct false beliefs with doctrine. Because false beliefs take such a daily toll on us. It's been something that's just worked in my soul for years as that concept has been given to me. And, and so we'll work through those two principles today. Agency being the first understanding that. You're saying, oh, I understand agency. You, you probably do. But do you understand agency within the context of emotional wellness? Um, that's what I want to teach you from. Is, is the war in heaven is bottled with this topic. This is the topic that God said, I will never go against my children's agency. I will not take that away. The adversary says, just take it. Remove it. And so what the adversary is doing today, and I want to be careful with this statement I'm making here. I'm not saying that any emotional struggle or mental struggle is because of the adversary. I'm not saying that. I want to be as clear as possible. But I do know that he understands the difficulty that people are going through when it comes to that, and he will use it against you if he possibly can by beating you up with it. He doesn't, he doesn't, he does not like have any rules like, oh, okay, they're struggling, we should leave them alone. See. No, it's the opposite. They're struggling, so let's beat the I'm from Wyoming, I almost said something I should go. Um, let's beat them up a little bit, okay? Um, so any Wyoming folks? Yeah, we love them. All four of us. Um, Dad raises hand these two ladies. <laughs> so, so two things that I want to do. These are I call bonus principles, and I teach them at the start, kind of like I did the supported and delivered yesterday. I want to give a couple bonus principles right off the bat. Um, I asked this question in class one day that just really woke me up, and the question is: Is our faith in outcomes or Christ? 
Brothers and sisters, when our faith lies in outcomes, our mental state will be a train wreck. Because outcomes are often based on things outside of our own parameters of agency. Like others' agency, or the mortal world we live in, or, or just life itself. And so, when we can just shift and say, my faith is in my Savior, Jesus Christ, not in outcomes, that allows me at that point just to open up to help him teach you from what you're really like, who you've always been, the goodness of your soul, and everything else. Um, and so, when we're in outcomes, we abdicate, we give up our agency to whatever is happening before us in that moment. That can be our children's agency, our spouse's agency, it can be um, the, our boss's agency, it can be all of those. And we literally say, okay, whatever you do is going to determine how I feel. But when I turn to Christ and say, okay, what truths do you have that will help me understand why I'm here in this mortal life? So just a simple principle to ask yourself is, and if you're like me, I can't tell you how often I've had my faith in outcomes. And uh, not a single time have I walked away doing very well in that moment. Um, even though I'm a tremendously tenacious soul that likes to control things, I still couldn't control it enough to make it that I was satisfied in the outcome because somebody else's agency always interfered. Huh, that's a novel concept. As, I, as I've said to my wife, God, God really should have re-looked at this agency thing with children. And she goes, you sure seem to like yours. <laughs> Stink. That's true. She goes, so stop trying to take theirs. <laughs> I hate it my wife's right because it's most of the time. Um, what a couple. Second one. This is a principle. It comes from the book Atomic Habits. Um, that I, I just, it's a great book, and we, we know in conference one of the seven, he spoke on the 1%. Okay, that's the principle from Atomic Habits. But he teaches a principle in here, and he uses a little diagram that's kind of interesting. When we're trying to change and become better, it's just graph like there's a certain amount of time, and there's the results that we're seeking for. And sometimes I've noticed that when I'm working with somebody that is struggling with an emotional uh, difficulty in their life, they're hoping that their change will look like this. Start to learn, and I start to increase that minute. My brothers and sisters, if you look at the studies and the research, that is really rare. Most generally, this is what our growth looks like. It's really slow and almost imperceivable at the start. Then at some point, somewhere, it seems to kick into gear, and all of a sudden, change starts to happen. He calls this the valley of disappointment. He says if you can't make it through the valley of disappointment, it becomes difficult to have change and become more permanent in your life. Okay? There's always this little valley where, if you think about it, it's because you learn a new concept here at Education Week. does not mean you're going to, like, by tomorrow have it conquered, right? And in fact, if you're like me, you're not even going to remember what you were taught. And you took these notes and I put it away and I don't look at it until next year when I bring the book back out. Uh, <laughs> because because uh, I don't have time. All of a sudden, I don't have time. And so what I want to do is I take notes that literally are based upon not what the person says, but the simple revelation of what I should do with what they said. 
And then that way, God keeps it much more simple. And I'll walk away from something like this with one, two, maybe three, but most generally that overwhelms me. I'll work with one or two things that just seem to keep coming up that I need to work on and realize it's not going to happen quickly. And this valley of disappointment is very real. It's a simple principle from, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson. That in which we persist and do it becomes easier to do. Not that the nature of the thing has changed, but the power, but that our power to do has increased. And this valley right here is, this doing right here is what is often creating strength that will help you as the heel starts. Sometimes this heel is too tough to start with, so God kind of gives us a period. And we call the valley this one because it's like, man, am I changing? Am I ever getting any better? Am I ever going to do any, any, am I going to go over this stupid struggle I've had forever? Well, I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know that the God of heaven doesn't look at mortality like we do. He sees it as a very important small blip. He sees us as who we were and what we'll become in the midst. He has lenses that see that in the midst of our absolute sometimes mess. That we look at from the mess point and go, holy cow, I'm a mess. And he goes, no, you're not. Kind of like grandma. Like, what is that? My grandma could go in the fridge and I would open the fridge. I think it was my grandma during college. And so she would cook three meals a day for me. I was so spoiled it was sick. I mean, because my grandma loved to cook. And so she cooked me breakfast before I went to school. If I came home for lunch, she cooked me lunch. And then, and then she'd have dinner ready for me every night. My friends would say, can we come to your house tonight? I'm like, yeah, you don't like me. You want my grandma's food. They're like, yeah. So uh, my grandma would say, bring them over. And I would go in and I'd open the fridge and I, there was nothing in there. Nothing in there. And it was like, there was, and I said, grandma, there's nothing in the fridge. She goes, sit down. And she'd go over and she would take this and this and this and this and put it together and look like a mess. And man, it was good. It tasted delicious. Because see, we sometimes open our fridge about in our lives and look inside and go, God, there's nothing there, is there? And God goes, oh, yes, there is. Let me open your fridge and I'm going to show you what I'm going to make of you. I'm going to make something grand and delicious and make like my grandma could do. And, and the best part of her meals was her talks. And I got to talk with her about life. Those are my favorite part of the meals is talking with my grandma. And she taught me so much. Corrected me kindly when I didn't know. And so, as God is making dinner for you, the best part often is the talks you can have with him when he finally sits down and you eat with And hopefully we can do that a little more. So there's a couple principles for you as we go through, all right? So let's talk about the doctor of agency. One of the things that is really critical with emotional wellness is that you must understand the difference between agency and choice. If you do not understand the difference, we often clump everything into the agency realm. Elder Bednar, if there's any apostle that is focused on that we must be an agent to act, not be acted upon, he has brought that out, right? And he talks about agency on a constant, consistent basis. Probably not anybody that's talked about it more in the last you know, 15 years than Elder Bednar. Um, but one thing we, we do is sometimes we don't realize that agency will always be always there. Always. Agency is never removed. But I 
can tell you, I have talked to a lot of people in the moment of emotional wellness, emotional struggle, that go, I don't have any agency right now. I'm like, that is not correct. You may have limited choices. I'm going to teach you the difference between these two, okay? So let's define agency, okay? The guide to the scripture says the ability and a privilege God gives people to choose and act for themselves to make a choice, okay? I love how Elder Bednar teaches it. <clears throat> Excuse me, I apologize. The capacity for independent action and choice. That's really important to understand, okay? There are three things necessary in order for agency to have its full effect, and that's from 2 Nephi chapter 2. Simply stated, there has to be opposition. Why do we need to remember that? If you never felt emotional struggles, would you know what the other side is? If Adam and Eve would have kept eating all the trees of the garden and never partaken of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they would have never known that the tree, that the, the tree of life was so amazingly sweet. Because it was kind of neutral. It's the bitterness of the one that allows them to experience and make the other one so sweet. It's simply like this. When Adam and Eve partook of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they could not partake of the knowledge of the tree of life after that because they lived forever in their sins. In other words, had eternal bitterness. God needed them to have a time of experiencing things difficult so then when they got back to the tree, it would taste sweet like in Lehi's drink. It's almost as if that fruit needed to become ripened by their experience before they partook of it. Because if they took it out right after, it would have been a bitter taste. Living forever in your sins is about as bitter as you get. Right? experience, repentance, that tree becomes sweet because now I don't live forever in my sins. Now, I live forever in Christ and what he does for me to change me. That's the difference. Where if they'd have taken it immediately, Christ would not have been needed. It would have been done. The law of justice would have held them there forever. You're done. Okay? Because now you're immortal in sin. Okay? And so, law. Law tells you what's right. Law tells you what's wrong. It's that simple. <clears throat> and if we didn't know what's right and what's wrong, then we could not. And the third one is enticement. Now, this is an interesting one. If you look in 2 Nephi 2, and then you go to DNC 29 and 39, it teaches that there must be an opposition to all things. But he goes in here and says, the opposition is created by the enticement from one or the other. In other words, the enticement of the tree of knowledge of the needle and the enticement of the tree of life. Or, it says in the NC 29-39, Satan allows enticement, or God allows Satan to do enticements so we'll have the ability to have our agency fully effective. So those three things are needed in agency, okay? Um, and I know some will say, well, isn't the knowledge of good and evil say that later? We've got to realize that Adam and Eve did not have the knowledge of good and evil. But they still had agency in the tree because they, in the garden because they had opposition, they had law, and they had a tax fund. Okay? Make sense there? <clears throat> so let's work through this. I'm not trying to change a definition. I'm trying to add a thought to a definition. So this is how I like to define the, uh, agency when I'm teaching about emotional wellness. I don't always teach it exactly this way, but I love this the way that it has come to me to help people that struggle with emotional wellness. Our ability to be to make the best possible choices within the limitations I have within the environment I am in. That's how I like to define it within an emotional state. Is that I make the best possible choice I can within the limitations of my mental state at that moment. So I still have my agency. 
So an open reporter for understand there is truly a difference between agency and choice, all right? We always have agency, but sometimes it is our, in our circumstances, our choices may be limited. The amount of choices you have ebbs and flows with mortality, with the environment of mortality, with your mental capacity at that moment, with your mental state at that moment, it ebbs and flows, okay? But agency is always intact. And I wanna make sure you think, I'm, I, I probably say you're beating a dead horse, but it's a, it's a horse that needs to be beaten enough that we make sure we understand it. So Elder, I, this is my favorite, favorite way of teaching is from Elder Oaks. First, because agency is a God-given precondition to the purpose of mortal life. No person or organization can take away our, now, the word free, I meant to take out, put a dot, 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 because they don't use the word free anymore because that's not a correct statement from the scriptures. It should be called moral. So that should say our moral agency and mortality. Second, what we have can what can be taken away or reduced by the condition mortality is our freedom, the power to act upon our choices. Agency is absolute, but in the circumstance of mortality, freedom is always qualified. Okay? Freedom may be qualified or taken away by physical laws including the physical limitations with which we are born. If somebody is born in uh, a place that is, my son went to Malawi, Africa, and ran a program there, and, and they did not have the choice that, I just unplugged my thing. They did not have the choice to go to school because there were no schools. Didn't exist. Sorry, we gotta do something real quick so I can see it too. So, but they still had agency. They still had complete agency. Okay? And in that process, you gotta realize that sometimes. Your physical laws or limitations that you came with you from the fall make it so that you don't have as many choices to make. You may not. In that same breath, we have to understand that our own actions sometimes will limit our freedoms. For sure. Okay? How we handle it. I shared a little bit, I think, yesterday about my brother who passed away. Um, I told you a story one time that's really struck me in my life. He had a little pessimistic stuff because of nothing that he had done because of the DNA that he received from his father and from some conditions that were out of his control completely. And he did really well for a long time, had some great experiences in that. He said one day he was riding horses with his friends and they were drinking, he didn't drink. One of them said, Would you like a beer? He said, I sat there and I knew I shouldn't be. Oh, what's interesting is that propensity became so strong, and he said to me, I didn't want to be mocked. So I took it. He says, That one day is a day that I wish I could change. But in the same breath, I have to ask myself this question. I think to some degree there were some limitations placed on him because of his DNA. And God will judge that according 
Thirdly, by the actions of others. And this one's really hard. If anybody in here has been abused in any way or form, sexually, mentally, emotionally, they know that even though it was not their fault, they're still affected by the choices of their opportunity. And sometimes the choices that they now have seem very limited. But we have to understand their agency still is fully intact. It's just they may not have as many choices to make in that situation because I had a young lady that was, was sexually abused. Two things usually happen with somebody sexually abused, either they become very sexually attracted to things because it's triggered something, or it's they become too abhorrent. And I've worked with both where the one, that's how she felt she could be loved because that's what she was told was happening when she was being abused. And so it stimulated her and her difficulty to stay morally clean was so and then another one where she was so scared of marriage because someday she got to be intimate. And she didn't ever want to be intimate again. Well, yes, they still have agency, but man, the limit of what's happened to them because of those choices is very real. And God compensates and helps with those things. He really does. Okay? My agency affects my children and their journey. And was I always as kind or good as I should have been? And did that affect it? Of course it did. That's where we trust in the atonement of Jesus Christ to heal and fix. He says a loss of freedom reduces the extent to which we can act upon our choices, but it does not deprive us of our God-given agency. Okay? You're maybe saying, but this, this isn't a duh, but it isn't for a lot. They honestly, when they struggle emotionally, start to think that their agency has been taken from them, and that is not true, because agency will always be present, but choices just to be brief, can be limited by various factors. It's kind of like this. I always have agency, and if I choose to make a right choice within the capacity that I have, it literally opens up more options. Okay? If I use my agency to make a wrong choice, and I'm saying outside of the realms, like going to school, like I talk about things of that nature, then, of course, what it does is it starts to limit or take away some of the choices I could make. What's interesting, it may not look like it, but the beginning distance are exactly the same in those two pictures. Exactly. That distance right there and this distance right here are the same. But it doesn't look like it. And that's what happens is we can narrow our choices, but our agency is always there. It's kind of like this. I was working with a young lady, um, she takes my, took my emotional wellness class, and she said, Brother Hunsaker, some days I can't even get out of bed. I just can't. And I said, that's understandable. I said, does that mean, she says, so I, I, I don't, I just like my agency is gone. I said, is your agency gone to think, to feel, and do those things? She goes, well, I don't want to feel. So I try to eliminate that one because it hurts. So she, she came to class one day, and I said, job. She knew exactly what I meant. I said, you, you did it today. And it's kind of like this. See, she has a whole bunch of things out there, but because of her mental struggle, they don't seem possible to her. And that may be absolutely true. And so that day, she got out of bed. Because that's all she could do. And you know what? Maybe that was the only choice she had that day. But I talked to her about it after. I said, okay, so 
Now that you've gotten out of bed, you have some options for more choice. She goes, oh, I didn't even think about that. She goes, huh, I can take a shower too now. Because if I don't get out of bed, I can't take a shower. She says, and I said, so even within a mental struggle where almost getting out of bed may be impossible, if we at least can have that choice place before us and we make it, it does start to open up another one. And that opens up, maybe you go on a walk, which you did, you walked over here to institute class today. And I said, and maybe while we're here, you, we can read some scriptures. And she's like, oh, wow. She says, so that one choice, even though it was terribly hard, started to open up some other ones. I said, yeah. And I said, now, maybe Tuesday, that's as far as you made it. And you know what? That's okay. That is okay. God isn't going to judge you on that you participated in all, but you did what you could within the mental state you're in at that moment, sister. Could you put that up clear up on the top so we can see the bottom? Um, I can't move it because I can't move that. Oh. I'm sorry. I can move my computer, but I wouldn't do anything. <laughs> um, so at the bottom, it's you see, it says get out of bed. Okay. So and then she says, and, and she says, well, wow. She said, there's been days where I. Because I got out of bed, and I took a shower, it gave me an option to go to work. And I said, and maybe that's all you can do that day, and that's enough. But realize, God will always make sure you do have agency, you will, but will not always have the choice. And so she says, and it gave me a chance to serve someone. I needed to counsel this week. And, you know, church, maybe I can make it to church that week. I said, so the days you don't make it to church and you just get out of bed and you maybe just read your scriptures, is God mad at you? Yeah. No, he doesn't. Absolutely not. Because you did the best you could within the choices you have, within the agency that he has given you. And that is enough. Because you're getting out of bed and you're reading the scriptures. And I want to be careful saying this because comparison is not healthy. But I said, compared to what you could do the other day, enough. Trust it. Or maybe that's equivalent to somebody else that ran a marathon that day. Because God's going, wow, you did it. And what it does, it continues to open up. Or maybe she goes to class and furthers her education. Um, it makes it so she has a chance to serve in her calling. Maybe she can, that helps her begin a relationship. And over time, I've watched so many young people. Sorry, I Is they realize that if I at least can make this first one, at least opens up a few more for me. And eventually, over time, some of these other programs. And I know that visual is not perfect. There's always a flaw in visuals, but I'm hoping that we can see the basic concept is that choices are limited according to our circumstance situations, but agency will always be there. <clears throat> so when my wife and I first married, we did something that helped us later in life. When we were struggling, and it seemed like that that struggle that we were struggling with was everything, we started to hand each other a quarter. And, and the quarter was a representation of that is all you're seeing. Now you're saying, that's really blurry. That's because when a quarter is that close to your eye, it's blurry. Okay, that's exactly what it is. And we would hand each other a quarter, and she would, and we'd just start to laugh. We were making this problem everything. And our goal was to take the quarter and slowly move it away so we could see things in true perspective, because the quarter was blocking everything. When my wife started to struggle with her emotions in such a severe way, 
we used this concept, and what it was is, she'd say, I know I have a quarter in front of me right now, Stephen, I know I do. She says, yeah, because of that quarter, I can't see anything. And I said, sweetheart, let me help you move it away at least a little bit. And so what we'd do is we'd start to move it a little bit, and she'd say, oh, there's something else there, isn't there? I said, yeah, let's, let's talk about some doctrine and principles that will help us to understand this journey. And, and, we, and we do this, and we, and she'd go, oh, yeah, I'll let my family, I can read. What this does is, is when we start to understand that our choices, each time we make a choice within the realm we can, and the best it is, it will open up other choices to where we can eventually start to see things a lot more clearly and put things into perspective in a way that really that thing that we thought was terrible really is not as big as we thought. Now when you're struggling with emotions everything's big that's right in front of you. It's huge. Why I'm teaching you this is is hoping that maybe you'll remember when you're sitting there one day in bed and the quarter is huge, you'll go, wait. I know there's stuff behind it. And if I can only move it a little bit, at least I can get a glimpse of at least some potential other things that are out there. And maybe I can do it. And maybe you can only take the quarter away a couple spots each day. That's okay. Because see, God knows that your decision or your choices are limited in mortality, but he will guarantee always that you will have agency to make at least a choice, or two, or three, or four, or however. But if you start to believe you have no choices left, you're not understanding the doctrine of agency. God will always allow you to have at least a couple choices within the agency. He is guaranteed by a war in heaven where a third part of his children were removed because they fought against it. And the adversary is still fighting that battle over agency. He is trying to put quarters in front of us to say, you don't have agency anymore, it's gone. And God says, no, your choices may be limited, but your agency is full of attack. Sister? Well, here's the thing is, when they come to the point where they feel like there's no other option, that is very, very real. And don't ever diminish that it's real. That's why in, when, if you've done any kind of training when it comes to suicide prevention, you don't avoid talking about it. You talk to them about it. And you say, do you have a plan? What is the plan? Is this, do you have the things necessary for that? Because you'll know where they're at, and when it is allowed to come out, it allows it to be diffused in a way that they can see things. It's almost like by asking questions, it pulls the quarter away where they can see there are other options besides that. But if you don't talk about it, the quarter stays very big in their minds. And so they just need somebody to talk to. Just the talking to somebody starts to move the quarter. And you start to say, there is more to this, there is that. You know, as Elder Holland has taught, there are other options. Please remember and choose to live. And they may be saying, well, the only choice I have right now is to die or to live. 
Maybe that's true. So let's choose to live. But the pain is too great. We'll work through the pain once we move the quarterback a little bit, where we can start to help you understand that there is launches and just the pain to fill into. And so as we work with that, we have to make sure we always acknowledge, <clears throat> always give hope, and have a safe place to work through what they are truly feeling and going through, okay? Thank you, sister, for bringing that up as a reminder for us, okay? So within that, we're going to jump into what I call belief boxes, okay? And um, these belief boxes um, are just very real. And what I found, and this is where my wife would come and testify and say, this is the thing that started to change her. It's the thing that started to give her hope and understanding is when she could take what she was believing and realize why she was believing it and then compare it to the truths that God had established. Okay? So I call this working through our belief box. My wife and I are Packer fans. Boy, K Packer fans. <laughs> Die hard for K Packer fans. Um, you're like, what? Um, I, he, his teaching changed my soul. And it started with this. This is the one in 1986 when he made this statement. And I was not, did not know of this statement because I was in high school. I graduated that year. But as I came from my mission, I started to study President Packer's truths about the family life. I noticed he continued to try to teach this principle that our behavior, our behavior is not totally controlled by natural impulses. Behavior begins with what I believe. Because I'm the type of person that when I want to change, I focus very heavily on my behavior. I'm a behavior-focused person. I'm a psychology background. I didn't completely agree with behavioral scientists because I understood the spirit. But I didn't feel there was something to it. And then the statement, of course, true doctrine understood, changes the word attitude. Another word that I would use for the word attitude is emotions and behavior. Because, see, every day we have thousands, in fact, I say tens of thousands of stimuli input and external data coming at you on a constant basis. Every single day. Right now, it's brother and sicker, it's your neighbor, it's life, it's whatever's going on, it's all there. And what happens is you take that stimuli and it flows into what I call a belief box. And within that belief box, there are three things. How you believe, what definition you've created from that belief, and the expectation you've created from that belief. And most generally, these come from experiences you've had in life, from mortality. Okay? Um, <clears throat> when I... I can, I can go back and I can tell you, my parents divorced when I was six. And that started to create a belief in me about marriage and relationships. I didn't know that. I had no idea about that until I got to the point where I was going to come to the point where I would search, search for an eternal companion. And I started to search for this eternal companion and all of a sudden I realized I am terrified of marriage. And I believe that the chances of it working are slim. Now, my parents got remarried to each other when I was on my mission, and so I thought it was kind of gone, but there was some baggage of those 12 years that I didn't realize I had. And, and so, as I dated my wife for a year, I broke up with her three times. And every time had a really good reason, I thought. But what it really came down to was I had a belief that it should work a certain way to know that it's right. And that part of came because when I came from my mission, I dated a young lady that I thought I was going to marry. And I fell in love with her, and it was a phenomenal experience. 
And I thought, I'm not scared anymore. I wasn't, I wasn't scared about this relationship. And then I went to the Lord, decided I should ask him if this is good or not. Because I hadn't, because it felt right. And it wasn't that it wasn't good, but I went and prayed, and the Lord said, this isn't the best course. And it wasn't because she wasn't righteous or I wasn't. It just wasn't the best course. I still to this day don't know why. So all of a sudden, every false belief I had about marriage rocked me, and for the next two years, I would not date a girl more than twice in a row. Because when I started to, my fears started kicking the gear, and so I ran, and I ran, and I ran. My behavior was to run, and in the minute, if I went on a date and they acted like they liked me, my emotions were a wreck. A wreck. And my behavior was to run. So I did. And I couldn't figure out why. So what I did is I would date more. I worked on my behavior. So I would go on three dates a week for almost two years with a different girl every time. My best friend, which was dating that girl during that time, would say, well, who are we going to meet this week? I'm like, I don't know. We'll find out. Um, because, because if I went past that, my emotions were a wreck. First date I felt safe. Second date I was scared. I didn't, so I, like I said, I tried to change my behavior. It didn't work. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll somehow change my emotion. And so there was a couple girls that I took out a couple times. It wrecked me. It wrecked me. And finally when I ended up meeting Michelle, it wrecked me multiple times too. But hallelujah, God in his absolute kindness kept her around. She should have been. <laughs> um, and I finally was able to face what I believed. Okay? So, we all have various experiences that you've had in life. It can be around relationships. It can be around the church. Some of you may have had some difficult experiences with the church. And now you have beliefs about the church that affect how you feel and the way you act when it comes to church activity. And some people will come in and they'll say, you get active in the church. You know what? That is a bunch of bull. What you need to do when you minister is you need to help them understand what it is they're believing that's causing them not to be in church. Just sending them to church does not fix false beliefs. It doesn't. Or their hatred or their anger towards something. When we go back to the belief that they have, that's where it gives them a chance to let their behavior and emotions. So if you look at this, Whatever happens here is when a stimuli comes in, it'll go through something true or false, true belief or false belief, an attitude, in other words, what you think, perceive, or feel about that thing, and then what will happen is naturally a behavior will change, a behavior will come out. Most people, like I said, were like me, where we work on our behavior a lot. That's why, if you think about it, most goals that people make at the New Year's are based around what? Behavior. Behavior. I'm going to read my scriptures more. Now you go, brother, that's sacred. That's a righteous thing. I said, that is true, it is. But my question is, what is causing you, what belief is causing you not to read your scriptures on a regular basis? What if you worked on the belief that you have about it? Like, I really don't believe that answers really come through scriptures. Then you're probably not going to read scriptures. Well, if I read scriptures enough, then I might change it. That is true because that's a spiritual thing and God is, can do that. But most generally, when you work on your behavior, you will, within two to three weeks, be back to the old behavior, and then you get frustrated. So what you do is you start to work on your emotions. 
no matter how I feel about it. And within two or three weeks, you realize your feelings are about the same. And if that doesn't work, you change the stimuli. I watch college students do this all the time. They work on their behavior thinking that they will change something. They go to their emotion, it doesn't work. Then they go, you know what? I think it's because of my roommates, and so they move. <laughs> or they start to date somebody, and they go, oh, okay, but they realize they're scared, and they go, oh, I need to date somebody different. They must not be the right one because of how I feel. My question is, what do you believe about dating? What do you believe about marriage? What do you believe about relationships? Until you correct that, it doesn't matter who you date. It makes no difference. We change jobs. We move to new neighborhoods. We move to new wards. Hoping the next one will be better. Problem is, there's a common denominator in each one. It's you. <laughs> and what came with you? What you believe about that thing. Okay, it's very real. I had a, a simple experience of it. I, I've been serving at a YSA ward for the last three years and this was released. Well, we moved into a new ward while I was gone, so I don't know the ward at all. They don't know me. And my family kind of struggled in the ward a little bit, especially a couple of my teenagers. It's probably any ward, from my, in my experience. And my wife, my wife was never negative about it, but she wasn't positive either. So I got this in my mind, that this ward that was they were going to was not a very good ward. And I started to believe that. And I remember the first week I, after I got released, I went back to the ward. And I remember going, all right, I'm going to see what makes this ward so bad. I literally did that. I sat, I sat in Sunday school, and there was this guy that kept making stupid comments that weren't even doctrinally correct. And I thought, okay, my first week here, I probably shouldn't correct that. Um, and so I went home and I said to my wife, I said, there's a guy in church that just keep making stupid comments in Sunday school. She goes, is it so-and-so? I said, I don't know. I don't know anybody's name. Does he sit in the back right there? And is this, uh, yep, that's him. Oh, you don't see it's true. He makes dumb comments. And so I find reinforcements. And all of a sudden I realized that I was not giving my ward a chance. And I went and I repented. And I said, Heavenly Father, I am sorry. Can I tell you, this ward is phenomenal. And nobody in the ward has changed. <laughs> my beliefs about them changed and my emotions, my behavior towards them is completely different. I walk around and I talk to everybody. I see what they're doing, I love them. And this guy that makes doctrinally incorrect statements still does. <laughs> but I started to learn about his background and some of the things I realized why he's doing what he's doing. He struggled with some things. And it's good he's there. It's good he's there. My belief was corrected and it was influenced by experiences with my own family. Well, I wasn't going to stop going to church, so I'm not going to you know, not go to church. But my emotions about going to church were not very enjoyable. I wasn't very excited. In fact, I caught myself one day going, you know what? I'll go visit mom and dad. I don't want to go to church over this weekend. And I thought, what are you doing? What's this with And so I really searched my heart about what I believe about it. And I'm telling you, it works. So let's work through how this happens, okay? A belief is an idea that we have come to believe are true. Now, the key phrase... Just because you believe it's true does not mean it's true. Your perception is your reality, but it doesn't mean it's real. 
Anybody that's talked to somebody that thinks their perception is real and they can see with an absolute 100% assurity that it's not, it doesn't matter what you say, it's, it's, it's real to them, right? It absolutely is. Okay? Your definition is what the belief, that belief looks like in your life. Okay? I'm just, why I'm doing three of them is because often if we focus on the belief, we miss the other two, we're going we're gonna to still struggle. Finally, the expectation is what we expect from ourselves from that belief and what we expect from others because of the belief. So if it's a false belief, we often have a false definition and a false expectation that comes from it. The only way to correct false beliefs is you have to compare them to doctrine because doctrine is eternally true. I will show you how to do that. Okay? Because see, here's the thing is, inside of our brains, we have absolutely true and false beliefs. We have a lots of them. When we were born, we didn't have as many of those as we do now. We had mostly truth. Children just have a way of believing. It's, it's an amazing experience. Um, but over time, we become all wise. <laughs> and our faith isn't as a little child. It's upon our experiences instead of our God. And we have to be careful with that. Because, see, I've had experiences, and I've watched, where a true, absolutely wonderful revelation came to somebody, but because they had a false belief about God, their emotions and their doubts kicked into high gear because it went through this box. I've also seen where a, a very difficult stimuli, something happened to somebody that was very hard, but because they know God and they trust Him, it filtered here and they had a good experience and their faith was deepened from something negative. See, this isn't what matters. It's which one it goes through will automatically bring a process in our lives. Now, the beauty of it, we can always go back and reevaluate. And that's what we'll help you work through, okay? I'll give you real life examples. Ready? Let's say you have a belief. That if I do all things the prophet asks, a gospel recipe, then we won't have any struggles in our family. <laughs> now, all you that chuckle <laughs> know that you might have had this at some point in your life before you had children. Um, <laughs> I always smile a little bit. We have we have ten children, which doesn't mean squat, except that. I have 10 experiences of how many times I've blown it, how many times I've done okay, and everything in between. But I always kind of smile when a young couple that doesn't have any kids and a mortal raise their hand during a parenting talk and say, this is how you should parent. And my wife always looks at me and goes, oh, no, the agency is more real than they believe. And I smile and go, I was that guy that used to say things. That was me. And um, I've learned from experience. But now, could we doctrinally back up that belief? There's a doctrine that says that if I do everything right, my children won't struggle. Well, I can't back that up doctrinally. There's no doctrine that teaches that. There's a doctrine opposite of it. It's called agency. I have agency. My children have agencies. But what happens is when I create a belief like this, this is often how I'll start to define it. If I have family prayer, script study every day, family meeting every week, and attend church and all the youth activities, then my children will make all perfect choices. Now, what's here? You're saying, well, let's but those are good things. Yes, they are good things. But good things done with the wrong motivation can be damaging. I can testify to that. As I would as a young father, had 
thought that, uh, that little children could sit for 35 minutes and listen to me teach, because my students wouldn't, so I thought they wanted to. And our home meetings were horrible. It was me yelling at the children the whole time. Sit down so I can teach you about forgiveness. <laughs> Let me tell you, God speaks with quiet, kind voices. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> and you should be nice to each other right now. And my wife, I remember my wife one day, it was just an ugly home meeting, and she says, well, how'd that go? I'm like, oh, shut up. <laughs> you know how it went, you saw it. She goes, can I run it next week? I'm like, fine, you think you know what you're doing, you do it. Oh my word, it was good. We had a five minute lesson with little objects and an awesome treat and a fun activity and my kids were like, can mom do this more often because dad, you're lame. Like, yeah, you run it for the rest of our lives then. I'm like, probably get in the way. And so, oh, it's so real. Expectations, all of our children will go on missions, marry the temple, stay faithful, and not struggle with that. But see, do you see where it came from? Do you see that it flowed from a false belief? So what happens to my emotions? I'm constantly stressed, worried, and every time my children make a bad choice, I get frustrated, and I start to have to be hopeless. But it's because it's not a correct belief that can be backed up. So I try to control, I'm overbearing, and I helicopter parent. Because it's based upon the belief that I've created that is not true. Let's fix it. Now, you guys, will you hurry up with your pictures? <laughs> I put it back up. Don't yell at me anymore. Here we go. We're going to the next one. <clears throat> Say it again. Oh, wow. That's a great insight. That's because he teaches that at the end of his sermon there, that he's before he does the angel. That is a great insight. I think you're dead on. Thank you. It's a false understanding of Mosiah 241. Yeah, which teaches a principle. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. What, what's the scripture? Mosiah 241. Mosiah 241. It's the last words that King Benjamin does before he quotes the angel. Belief. The fall brings various struggles to life. Worry, anxiousness, hurt, pain. Those feelings are not permanent. Doctrinally correct? Absolutely. And if I believe and know that the fall is real, and that there's going to be struggles and difficulty, and at times I'm going to be anxious, and I'm going to be depressed, and I'm going to hurt, and I'm going to have pain, but they're not permanent because of Jesus Christ, another doctrine, that's a correct one. So what happens here is my definition can be doctrinally correct by doing this. I know that there will be difficulties in my life, but I do not have to let them control my world. That's doctrinally correct. That's based upon the doctrine of agency and choice we just taught today. So my expectations, I expect myself and others will struggle and fail at times. But through Jesus Christ, I can learn and grow. So it stays more safe. Which means my emotions is I will have more hope more courage, more patience with the growth and process of family, parenting, and life. And so what my behavior will look like, I'll look for opportunities to even serve, to serve even when I am struggling. I will seek refuge in the temple, the words of the prophets and the scriptures. That all starts with correcting the belief, allows a process of change with the rest. Okay? So you just take a look at this. Look at the doctrine that are behind those. The fall, agency, atonement, father's plan, temple covenants. The whole process is based upon doctrine. Okay? 
So at the time I have, I'm going to have to cruise through something. I want to show you something. <clears throat> I cannot say how often I hear somebody say this. There is no reason I should be depressed. Righteous people don't struggle with depression. <laughs> Doctrinally false. I just talked to you about the fall yesterday in agency today. I am weak, pathetic. There must be something wrong with me. I'm not faithful enough. That's how I define it in my life. My expectation is I expect myself not to struggle with it, and you fill in the blank. I should be able to shrug this off. I know the gospel. Others expect me to be better than this. <laughs> Do you know how many times I project upon God what he thinks about I'm really thinking? I'm the king of projection on him. Emotions, I get frustrated, more discouraged. I feel pathetic feelings. I'm disgusted with myself. And finally, what are my behavior? I run, I hide, I deny. This is going to sound like you're saying, I pray more, I read more, and I pretend like everything is okay. Now, let me show you how to interrogate your belief. This is important. I'm only going to do one because of time. It is so critical that you learn to interrogate your belief. So let's say you have a belief that there is no reason I should be depressed. Righteous people don't struggle. Can you, let me show you how to interrogate. When you interrogate something, it brings the truth out. That's the purpose of interrogation. Okay? So the first question I would ask is, what does that belief come from? That's interrogation. Why do I believe that? Is it really true? And can I base it on a doctrine? What doctrine would correct it if it isn't? Why might I believe it? What insecurity or weakness increases my tendency to fall back to this belief? When I start to ask those questions, it chops the belief's legs right off. I'm learning that when I interrogate my fears, my beliefs, those things, it gives me hope. And I'll show that in another time. I'll show you tomorrow what we'll teach you how to interrogate your fears so that they don't have the power that they constantly have in your life. So <clears throat> let me end with this one. I had a young lady send this to me. I love it. She says, well, this is what's so weird. I was in here I, at that lesson. And she says, I realize I wouldn't have my belief. God is all-knowing. She says, it's true. She says, I realize that you can have a true belief based on doctrine, but the breakdown of it, if it's not doctrinally correct, causes you problems. So she says, this is what I might define it as. I do not have to make decisions about where, what to do next with my life, trusting that all-knowing God has directed me. She says, that's what I honestly believed. So she says, my expectation was, all I need to do is wait for him, and he'll choose a path for me. So she says, this is where it hit me. I realized I was always frustrated, and I couldn't figure out why. She says, I live in frustration. She says, but I know God's all-knowing. But she says, my next two were not doctrinally correct. And so I was frustrated. And so what did I do? I stopped asking for guidance. No. She says, Brother Zinger, after you taught this lesson, I did this. I kept the first one, and I reestablished the second. I must use my agency to choose to seek the Lord's sanction. She says, I put it on doctrine. The next one I put, mistakes will happen, but he is there for me. Ask for help. She says, then this is what happened to my emotions. I found relief, comfort, and excitement. And finally, she says, I begin praying for help, and then I practice my agency and doing the best that I can. She went through this exercise, and it changed her. She realized she did not have all three doctrines correct, and it started to cause emotional difficulty. Brothers and sisters, the God of heaven is here to help us through every part of mentality. Your agency will always be in times. I promise, and I guarantee that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.